I thought you were I, something. I don't know why, but I thought you were British. <laughs> no. 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 I mean, I shot Iron Lady in England, but that might have been what it was. I might have thought that because it was the Iron Lady, it must have gotten a British DP, right? Like it probably was in my head. Who directed that? They by the way, searched me <laughs> out. Uh, Phil Little Lloyd. It was a beautiful movie. Yeah, thank you. My my big my big uh, my big comparison of I think it was last year. About last year, this time when it was coming out, when the when the trailer was on, there was a trailer for J. Edgar, and then there was a trailer for um, Iron Lady, and like J. Edgar was like this big, like you know, you know, you could basically hear like the the Stephen Horner, you know, the the the, the James Horner violins going, and you know, or the, you know, you know, name your composer, and then you know, and like like this whole thing, the biopic. He's young, he's old, he's fat, he's not, he's thinner, he's old, fatter, you know, more makeup, less makeup, you know. Slamming his hand on a desk and like, and then and then and then Iron Lady was just literally like these two, two British aristocrats and it turns to Meryl Streep which is, oh, they love the pearls and I was like okay I, you sold me I gotta go see that yeah, you know because yeah, just you know Meryl Streep in playing, playing Margaret Thatcher that was it you know what I mean yeah, well you know it's a, a big intellectual exercise too you know that whole thing because, as the director said it's. It's not really a film about Margaret Thatcher. It's a film about an old lady who's got Alzheimer's or some dementia, form of dementia, and she just happens to be named Margaret Thatcher. Right. You know, so that was the approach we took. So it was a lot different than J. Edgar Hoover, you know, in the sense, this is J. Edgar Hoover, there's no way out. Right. You know what I mean? What you're saying, that should have just been a movie about a man who likes posters of other men secretly. Well, that's the subjects of it, right? <laughs> right. But, yeah. Yeah. but but it should have been the text of it. Yeah, but that's not the what you're going to sell. Right, yeah. Right? That's right. You have to sell Leonardo DiCaprio and you have to sell J. Edgar Hoover. Right. Whereas Iron that Lady. wasn't really the attempt on Iron Lady. Iron Lady was probably a much deeper picture and, you know, and a greater intellectual and emotional exercise than... than uh, and J. Edgar. Right. You, know, you you see what you get in, uh, or you get what you see, I should say, in J. Edgar. You do. Where in Iron Lady, <laughs> there's more than what you just seen. Yeah, no, there's a lot. There's a lot about it. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, let's talk, first of all, there is a lot of flash forwards and flashbacks, or it's not, when it's that much sort of split, it's not really a flash forward and a flashback, it's more just like stuff that happens in the past and in the present and in the well, yeah, well, that was the idea that her mind is nonlinear. Right. So the whole idea was to become nonlinear, and that was the, probably the big breakthrough in the script. Because when we got the script, it didn't really have that kind of stuff in it. The script was, oh, so it was... straight. Well, during prep, prep, the director and myself flushed it out to restructure the story on a visual, emotional level. So the. Interesting. And that was the introduction of the whole thing of the non sequiturs. The non sequiturs were the thing that kind of broke the camel's back in that sense, and that um, it allowed time to move. Right. You know, not only physically, but emotionally. So, so did Meryl Streep also embrace it and also want to sort of go there with the performance, or was was it all scripted? I'm saying, was well, it was scripted after we figured it out. Right. It was okay. written in, but it wasn't when we initially got it. So. Because the whole premise, the whole the whole thing the director did not want to do was make a what something could be like J. Edgar classified as a biopic. She didn't want that. She wanted 
an emotional, personal story of somebody who happens to be that person. In other words, to make it more universal. Well, on that note, I mean, you know, she first thing one of the first things you see is her going to buy milk mm-hmm. and complaining about the price of milk to her husband, who's no longer the, played by the wonderful actor. I'm forgetting his Jim name. Jim Broadbent. Played by Jim Broadbent, and a, yet again, a phenomenal sort of supporting husband role. He's done it before, and he's amazing, just amazingly talented. What what was it like photographing these act? I mean, was it, you've worked with great actors over the years. You worked with tremendous actors. You worked with George Clooney. You worked with Sean Penn. You worked with tons and tons of actors. Um, but photographing arguably the greatest screen actress, mm-hmm. female actor ever to go on go onto the silver screen. I mean, what was that? Well, I had to put that out of my mind. Right. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's like playing in the World you're, Series. You're here to do a job. Yeah. You're here to do a job. Right, well, it's right. like playing in the World Series, right? You're a baseball right. player. You played 162 games. But it's still special to be the World Series, right? But in right. the end, it's still another baseball game. Right. You have to win, right? <laughs> so I think that... Um, Elliot, just drop your killing arm equipment. So I think that, you know, for me it's the same. You know, when you're a cinematographer, you just have to do every job just like the one before it. Right. And um, it's like my wife says, you know, I say, well, God, I wish I got that movie. Why didn't I shoot that? She says, what difference does it make? You know, because it's how you make your living. Right. And, um, you know, at a certain point, you know, because once you're established. And uh, if you ask... I heard a story once where somebody interviewed one of the old famous cinematographers who did all these great movies, and they said, what was it like to shoot this or to shoot that same question? And he says, I don't know. I don't even remember it. I, just, I went to the studio and I shot. You know, they told me what to shoot and I shot. Right. You know, so it's like what they do. It's who you are. And whether it's Meryl Streep in front of the camera or George Clooney or somebody who hasn't made a reputation yet, it's, you still have to do the same work. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's that attention to work and your craft. It doesn't matter who it is. So you, because you don't want to create unnecessary pressure for yourself. (laughs) Fair enough. That all being said, you're looking, you're staring through the IP set, Meryl Streep. What was was that experience like? Well, that experience was, um, you know, it's funny. Maybe it's my personality. But I kind of flatline. <laughs> in other words, I treat because emotionally I try not to get too high or too low. Because you try to keep yourself a little bit stoic. Yeah, because you, and it was okay. So without wanting to distract from what you're about to say, is it like that for everything with you? Whether you're getting the job, not getting the job, you missed on something. You try and keep it even. Yeah, because on there's the day, always throughout the day the crew and shooting. That's right. Because there's always disappointment and there's always exultation, but neither one is permanent. I don't want to be too Buddhist about it, but you have to let it go. You know, so if you have a disappointment, you have to let it go. If you have an exaltation, you have to let it go because it's not going to stay. You know, and also as a crew person, you're at the vagaries of the director, the producers, the actors, whether they're right or wrong about whatever they're doing. You're subject to that and have to deal with that, you know, and still do your job. And you could be right or wrong too on the day. They yeah. could be, they could, you know. But it's not about being right or wrong because no. it's not my movie. Right. Well, that's a good one. <laughs> yeah, it's not my film. I'm there to facilitate a movie and contribute to what I can to make that movie as good as it can be. But as soon as I take the job, I have to let it go. <laughs> right. The minute you get it. Yeah. 
you have to let it go from then on because you can't have any vested interest in it. Otherwise, that becomes your main your main goal is to protect your vested interests, and that's not where you want to be as an artist. Mm-hmm. If you're doing, if you're doing your creative process and trying to make that happen, the process, then whatever happens at the end of that is what you deserve. Right. <laughs> Let's get a little bit specific about the Iron Lady. I mean, I, I wanted to sort of come to this movie later, but because we started on it, and it is such a beautiful movie. Um, you know, I, I really, I loved this picture. I thought it was just a great, very beautifully done biopic. Um, and your photography was refined. It was, and, and, and the funny thing is, I had to review all of your pictures, you know, think about, you know, what, what do I see? And I don't really, I mean, a lot of the time, sometimes photographers want all their movies to look different. And they don't. They have a consistency, which I don't think is a bad thing. Some of the time they really look consistent a lot, like obviously consistent, but they're all beautiful. The only thing consistent about all your movies is that they all look good. <laughs> like they, they really all have a totally different, unique flair. I mean, I was looking at them like, you know, 13, completely handheld, almost, is the, uh, 100% of the movie handheld. Yeah. I, I, I tried to look for one shot on sticks. I couldn't find it. Um, I Am Sam, kind of like a mix of that style, which is a shot around the same time, I think a few years before. Yeah, a couple of years before. A couple of years before. Um, and then, like, so I had to go all the way back to your first film because I was like trying to find something to anchor, you know, like what's the consistency of, you know, the Elliot <laughs> style, and, and I couldn't find it. So then I went back to, to, I know this wasn't your first picture, but it was your first picture after you operated a lot, which was Vamp. That was my first commercial picture. First, your first commercial picture, and even that was like, okay, so it's 1986. It was his first, you know, first commercial picture. It might look a little bit what it. No, it looked very good. It looked, it looked very like, you know, it doesn't really date to that period like so many other movies do. You can put in a ton of other movies from the mid 80s, and you see something that, to for whatever reason, our eyes today, you know, con- contextualizes it. Oh, this looks like an 80s film. That really didn't really look look good. Um, is is it a conscious thing with you to try and make it everything look different, or is well, it... there's a couple of things going on. One, um, let's see, I was actually trained as an architect before I went into film. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, so I have a degree in architecture, and uh, architecture is really about the creative process, you know, and and whatever the goal of that is to create, whether it be a building or some kind of project, it all involves feedback you know, between the components that you're working with. So it's like an evolution, you know, like a stepladder, you know, like that. It's always continually evolving. So if I look at my whole filmography as that ladder, Mm -hmm. I would have to say that um, I've always been evolving toward the subjective, uh, bringing the viewer into the subjective world of the of the act- actors, the characters, the story. And so my cinematography has continually evolved from film to film to try and hone that. And that's that's resulted, if form follows function, that's resulted in a certain, uh, you know, as d- uh, a defined function taking on a certain form. And that relates to the particular project. So as each project changes a little bit, that... That thread still continues because I feel that that is the heart of cinema, 
In other words, if you can't become involve the audience in it, then then it becomes an intellectual exercise and it's a chore. So every time you put on a lens, every time you put up a light, every time you move the camera, you know, I'm trying to think of any other factor involved. Anytime mm -hmm. you do something to initiate a shot. Any creative decision. Any creative decision, it is all about how am I engaging the viewer. Mm -hmm. Well, it's, you know, I'm sure that a lot of photographers would say as much or say, mm -hmm. or say similar things, but I'm not sure so many are as, and I'm, it's going to sound like, empty flattery, but <laughs> I'm not sure somebody is as successful at it, because I do think that that's... Well, I, like I said, part of it, you know, I think a large part of it has to do with my background. Right. Because, you know, I'm educated to do that. You know what I mean? A lot of cinematographers... There also has to be a certain amount of talent, though. Yeah, but you need, you need some kind of structure, some kind of guidelines, some references, some, some way of funneling information. You know what I mean? Because otherwise you're, you're an anachronism in a way. You know, you're not a painter. You, you have to still stay up with what's happening either technologically and, um, and I want to say, culturally, right? So these are also checks. So the thing is, and, and, and tools. So it's something that I want to say when you're educated at a certain time in your life to do something, it becomes a foundation, you know. It's like if you learn to meditate, or you you use it your whole life, you know. Architecture was it for you? Yeah. Sort of guides you through the creative process. Yeah, which has a long history in film. Fritz right. Lang was an architect. The Italian neo realists were totally architectural. That whole German expressionism of how they use light and architecture and space—that's all architecture. Um, it allows me to interface with production designers. Totally, because their job is part of my job. And directors who were production designers. Yeah, and a director who was a production designer. Yeah. So that common language is the visual language of space and time and actors being defined by that, you know, what space and time they're in and how light affects them and the emotional impact of the story. So you can see if you start to put all those components in there and you're making decisions you can give them weight and say, okay, well, we should be doing this or this, or why do we want to do that when we could be doing this to support the story. Uh -huh. So let's talk about the visual aesthetic of The Iron Lady then. So a lot of the, a lot of the movie is very composed. Uh, it's very, I mean, I mean, it's like sort of like still framed. A lot of it's on sticks. A lot of it is held together sometimes. Margaret Thatcher will be in the next room and you're staring through a doorway. Sometimes, you know, you know, it, it, it sort of jump 90 degrees to make sure you get in front of her and to the side of her and things like that. A lot of two shots that people facing each other. Um, what was it, what kind of environment did you want to build photographically around the character? Well, you know, structurally in that film, the house became mm -hmm. her world. Right. And everything outside that house is a world that she interacted with or remembers in her mind. So I needed some kind of stable reference for, for the nonlinear things to happen, and then that was the house. So the house became, you know, it's just like when you have a dream, right? And you say uh, you have dreams about rooms in your, in your dream. Those, those rooms, I think, are very structural in your mind. It gives you a frame of reference, a sense of place, a sense for things to happen in. And so that's, 
that was the house in Iron Lady. That was her safe place, you know, where all things can happen because that's just the or, or point of origin for her mind to go anywhere. So that had to be stable. And let's talk about the light that you used. I mean, very, very natural. I think you, I mean, I, I don't like to use the word natural because it's like it's an overused term, but yeah. it was like extremely motivated yeah. light. Well, for me, I'm not really a believer in so-called naturalism. Right. Because naturalism to me doesn't even exist in movies. Mm -hmm. It's uh, you're, you're the belief that realism is just another style. No, I'm not even sure what realism is in okay. movies because I'm not even sure it exists unless you're doing a documentary, and then I don't even know it exists because it's framed up. What's well, edited too? Yeah, it's edited too. So for me, reality is just a starting point. Right. That's all right. it is. I mean, when I was referring to realism, I meant like Italian neo realism. You yeah. know, like it's it's termed that, but. It, at the end of the day, it is just another. It, it is another style. Yeah, it's a yeah. label somebody gave it. That's exactly, it exactly. It doesn't mean it's any closer to reality. Yeah. The than labels it. don't really mean anything to me. Right. Um, you know, I know right away that reality is just a reference, and I ne I don't really want to be in reality because that's not why we're shooting. Right. <laughs> we're 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 there to create a world, not right. to copy one. Right. To uh, to re you know to to make it like oh like you're in a, some kind of realistic world, well, then we should do a documentary. I mean, the point is to make the world that we create evocative in some form or other. So, t again, like the lighting in terms of... Right. I look at it... My most realistic lighting for me is what I would call um, natural expressionism. Uh-huh. That would be my base, <laughs> you know, my base of what... If somebody says, oh, that's natural looking... Mm -hmm. That, for me, is natural expressionism. So, because I'm always shaping the light, I'm always trying to make it do something. Now, a Can lot you pick of, out a few specifics in, in the Iron Lady that... Well, like in Iron Lady, for instance, we wanted the outside world to beckon to her, but she's not going there. <laughs> she, she knows what her boundary is. So, that whole set for Iron Lady was built on a stage. And there really wasn't anything out there. I had the last stage of Pinewood. It was all busy from Hugo and whatever else was shooting at that time, Tim Burton's movie. And there was no stages left, so that's the only stage we could get. I think the walls were like 20 feet away at the most. Maybe the farthest 20 feet away. So, so did this actually pose a challenge to what you wanted totally, to do? Because in terms of realism... I, by the way, I could have sworn that was actually a, an apartment. Like it felt, it yes. didn't feel like a set. Well, that's a tribute to also to the production designer, yeah. you know, and our interaction with the director. So, um, because one of the things I wanted her world to have was a monochromaticness. Yeah. That, so again, that's the reference. So that things that, um, that are in juxtaposition that really feel they're in juxtaposition of that. So when you leave that world in her mind, you feel like you've gone someplace. So... The farther back we went, and when she more first colorful. starts, yeah, it was a little more, a little more saturated, a little more colorful, and then we, we kind of graded that in the different periods. You know, I mean, it was still a little desaturated, but you know, to to carry her through in the skin tones, but then certain colors. The skin tones were up. very sort of alabaster, very yeah. smooth, like an eye, you know, very ivory. It was beautiful. Yeah, because that's you know, in in that sense, she's that's that tribute or homage to upper-class England, you know, with the white skin, the Victorian, 
the the woman of position you know even though she's trying to play with the big boys she is still a woman you know and has her quirks has her handbags has her shoes has her feminine world too you know was there and now thinking back to the film were there any sort of clever transitions you wanted to play with to, to get from the, the the safety I won't say the present to the past because it's a misnomer but to get from the safety world of the house when she sort of starts remembering things or was there any sort of you know somebody's there but they're not there we put them there I mean, was there any- well that was the whole Jim Broad, Broadbent uh, theme her husband Dennis that you know he would come and go and you know that was you know in film terms that's always con- a contrivance <laughs> but in this case because time was we didn't want time to be continuous you know you could accept it as as in her mind in other words i think to make the audience accept all this stuff you have to start setting up patterns very early in the movie and that worked in the movie because right in the opening he's sitting there you think it's just a normal scene with uh-huh. she and her husband and then you find out he's not there so right in the beginning it's like in an old movie. Like they like to set the movie up in the first five minutes. Right. They tell you what's going on. It's classic 50s, 40s Hollywood film noir. In this case, this film did that too. Oh, <laughs> you thought he was real? You thought it was linear time? No, it's not. Now he's something from the past, you know, something rattling around in her head. It takes you a little bit to figure out that out, but once you do... It's a process for the audience to go through, too, because you want the film on a visual level, a graphic level, to be like the mishmash of her mind. So you, you want to try, that's the thing, the whole integral piece wants to feel like it's in her head. Is there any particular sequence in the film that you really just love the way it came out? Yeah, there's many pieces in that film. Like you say, I really love the feel and the texture of the apartment, the... Mm-hmm. It's just the whole world is also very calm there. You know, it's, um, I don't know, uh, it's just, you know, she kind of feels integral to the walls and the colors. We we purposefully made everything in there kind of grays and blue grays. Yeah. And, you know, so the soft light was very cool when it came in. <clears throat> How did you deal with the, sorry, we never got to that. How did you deal with the 20-foot minimum distance to get to put up an instrument did you start bouncing things off of a no well, well what we did was we you know we went through the classical way what we put the diffusion actually became the curtains okay so the soft um, diffusion of the of the shears mm-hmm. was actually what spread the light and made it very soft and so uh-huh. that, okay interesting and the closer you get diffusion to an actor the softer the light is on their face so in that sense it worked well what was behind was there a translate back there or no we didn't even have a translate it was literally <laughs> it was just, just white and we had some so you're never actually looking out the window at a background no we had some painted trees back there sometimes in the windows but that's they okay. were just 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 something to feel they were right at the, they were right on the stage wall <laughs> and then when she actually lifted the curtain to see Dennis, we shot that in a real location. Okay, all right, because I just, it's, it's probably, it's, it probably is what you're describing, which is that it was all implied. 
Yeah. But I could have sworn I thought she looked out the window and she saw... She did look out the window and see Dennis, but yeah. because all you have to do is show the real reverse. out there one time. All you do is have to be shoot over her shoulder or her point of view of the curtain, and you look through it, and the audience sees that one time, and they always, from then on, will think we'll believe. it's real out there. Well, aren't you just a trick? <laughs> <laughs> it's just the psychology. The psychology of it. Yeah, no, it was because it really did fool you. It's not even a question of fooling you because, again, it's not about reality. It's just about the fact yes. that you, 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 you created a, a place that felt like it had physics and boundaries and, yeah. and a style to it. It's all about acceptance. Did you, use all, did you have to use a lot of light through the windows or was it, or was it you know, just... No, not a lot. You know, we just, uh, it was mostly just 10Ks. Well, so you shot tungsten inside. We, yeah, on the stage we shoot tungsten because we have more options for equipment. Got it. And HMIs. Got it. Are you uh, still still a diehard film guy, or is no. it no? It doesn't matter. No, I mean I love film, but I was the first person on this film I just shot with Keanu Reeves. We were the first people to shoot the Alexa Studio full chip anamorphic. Uh, in the, we were the first people in the world to use all the information on the Alexa anamorphic. That's great. Yeah. What uh, what lens set did you use for that? We used uh, Hawks and Hawk anamorphics. So it's it's like a it was like a standard four perf, super thirty five anamorphic. You're using the same amount. Of no, it would be the equivalent of film anamorphic. You're using the whole frame. That's squeezed. what I meant. Yeah, yeah. like a four, whole, a four yeah. a four a four perf frame squeezed. Yeah, that's fantastic. That was the first time in the world that had been done digitally. That's with, great. With what, an Alexa. What is that movie, by the way? Uh, that's called Man of Tai Chi. It's Keanu Reeves' new movie that he directed. He directed. Yeah. So this is his directorial debut? Yeah. And That'll be coming out this year. How do you feel about the, movie, the picture? I feel great. You know, uh, it was fantastic. We were in China for like nine months. Wow. And, yeah, with an all-Chinese crew. What's the movie about? Australia. It's a metaphor for where China finds itself right now. So, and that's embodied in the, in the conflicts of this uh, fighter. Uh, he's actually, it's a parallel structure going on. He's, a, he's a, the last descendant in, in this line of people studying this particular brand of Tai Chi. And, and when the film picks him up, he's a, he works as a delivery person, like a FedEx person in China. And, but at the same time, he's trying to support his temple and his parents, and he's got a lot of obligations, just like people all over the world do. But he can't make enough money as a delivery person. He's a low-wage earner in China. He's got a job, that's true, but China's just like the U.S. There's the rich and there's the other people. <laughs> and so uh, his temple comes up as being slated for redevelopment, so to, he wants to hold on to this temple, but he can't figure out how to do it. He can't make enough money. And so he's progressing. At the same time, he's enrolled in the, the um, Chinese National Martial Arts Official Tournament. And he's using this kind of Tai Chi that nobody's seen, really. And he's just one after another uh, laying out his opponents. and Just trashing them. Just trashing them. And Keanu Reeves' character is, um, I guess, one of the haves in China. And his, um, he runs an underground fight club, uh, a ring that broadcasts all over the world. And 
he tries to lure this character to fight for him because um, his fighter was killed, and he actually killed him because the end result of what this fighter is supposed to do is kill his opponent. So they build to the point where the opponent gets killed, and his fighter didn't do it, so his fighter was killed. So now he needs a new fighter, and this is the character he picks. He picks this guy because there's something about him that he's attracted to, plus this exotic form of fighting. And so Keanu Reeves' character nurtures this guy to bring him to that point. And, of course, he realizes he can't do that. The wrong thing. Yeah. yeah. Sounds like a kick-ass movie. Yeah, it's, it's really good. And, you know, 50% of the film is martial arts. and it's Wow. Yeah. And, um, Had you shot a movie with that much fighting before? I mean, No. I never shot a, a, you know, a specifically fighting movie. So I wanted to do that. I wanted to work with Keanu, you know. What did you learn about shooting shooting for, for fighting I mean as far as like you know oh there was so many things we had the same choreographer that Keanu had on the Matrix Wu Ping and you know it was just an amazing experience you know of uh, pulling that off you know it's I think uh, what you learn in China is that anything is possible wow you know I mean there's always a way to do something because the Chinese are very ingenious and inventive, um, but they're different than we are. <laughs> they right. do things differently, and uh, some are better, some are worse. <laughs> and and but that was that's what I learned from them too. I learned that there are things that they can do better than we have learned how to do, and that's the way I, I should learn that. And then I learned to confirm some things we do are the better way to do it. <laughs> You're speaking, obviously, like about North American culture. Yeah, Western. Western, Western, Western yeah. yeah. Because it has to do with the way of thinking about things, too. You know, the Chinese think about things differently. Yes. Their worldview is different, as it should be. Isn't it, as somebody put it to me, who's doing a, um, a series of like 20 episodes of a cooking show there, and he said that there's a tremendous stress on that culture and on imitation, on on the perfection of doing, of, of of being perfect at copying something that exists. And that he thought that was a huge part of the of the culture. Yeah. That I didn't find that. You know, I found I found the Chinese. Uh, now I'm only talking about creative thinking, and mm-hmm. only the creative thinking I've been exposed to in film. Right. For, for the one uh, project you were there. Yeah, for yeah. the one project I was there. Though being there that long, my interaction with them gave me a pretty good insight into at least the level that I was dealing with. And I think the one thing about China, China is like a an object in motion, inertia. It keeps going forward. An object in motion tends to have the tendency to keep moving yes, forward in space. Unless that's, acted on by an outside yeah, force. Yeah, that's China. Okay. You know what I mean? It's been moving through history thousands of years, and this is the direction they've moved in. And all their thoughts, all their actions reinforce that. Mm-hmm. Where in the West, people are encouraged or even judged on their ability to, uh, to exert initiative and um, take risk-taking and things like that. In China, you can be punished for risk-taking, especially if it doesn't succeed. <laughs> <laughs> this has been proven, right? Yeah, so I like the way you arrived at that thesis. Of, yeah, so it, yeah. a lot of people don't want to take responsibility for, for 
striking new paths, which in, because if it fails, it wouldn't be looked upon. The prognosis is not favorable. <laughs> so, so you have to encourage that in your crews, and in that uh, you have to encourage that kind of thinking. That because collaborative thinking and that kind of creative encouragement, I don't think is the norm. People are used to being told what to do, do it this way, this way, this way, this way, and then you will continue to be um, revered, right? So I think it was a new experience. Don't step outside the box. Yeah, I think it was a new experience of my crew to be brought into a collaborative circle because I, I asked them to tell me how they would do it, how this is what I want to do or this is what I think the film needs to have. How would you do it? If I, and then I say, well, well, this is how I would do it. This is how you would do it, and this is what we have to achieve. So how can we do that? So I, I, I try not to make them use things that they weren't comfortable using, but tried to make them use things in a new way, so that we could work together. Sounds like a really cool project. It was a cool project, and you know, I think it made me a better person for it. Right. And uh, you know, it definitely expanded my ability to be patient, and you know, to be <laughs> accepting. And uh, you know, because in China, you might ask for something, and you get that doesn't show up, and uh, you'd say, "Well, what happened? We asked for this," and I say, "Yes, but this is what we have." Mm-hmm. <laughs> but you don't know that to you have it. <laughs> so uh, you have to accept that and make it work. And was and again, when it comes to shooting, because so much of the movie was fights, and you're shooting fights, um, was there a learning curve for you as far as like, you know, what physically works together and what can cut between what and, you know, how to, and then, and then, I'm saying, did you A, go through that process and B, once you felt like you'd get your feet under you about this whole fighting thing did you start to try and take more risks yourself well we started off right away taking risks because Keanu did not want the fighting to look like traditional martial arts fighting which is a lot of cuts and inserts and things like that Keanu wanted to keep the camera moving and fluid so we immediately launched on a steadicam a steadicam approach to the fighting really yeah so a lot of that's the, yeah. pretty unique, actually. Yeah, it was because it required a lot of finesse with the Steadicam control. We used a Steadicam operator from uh, Australia, Greg Gilbert, and uh, we brought him in thanks to our um, line producer Sharon Miller, and he was enthusiastic about doing everything that was asked of him, and you know contributed a lot. Um, Keanu definitely wanted it to be a Something people were not used to seeing before. And so, there's, so the amount of cutting in these fight sequences is actually going to be probably a little bit less than what we're used to seeing. Yeah, and we tried to, you know, keep the camera going continuous, which in in China is they film in order and they'll they'll start shooting and then do the cut, then you know, then shoot some and do the cut. They uh, want that, to a full pass and then go. Okay, yeah, so it. they don't don't miss anything. They're, they're not like us where we shoot in one direction, then shoot in the other direction, things like that. That's not their way. Oh, really? Yeah. So when you ask how long will it take, it's always much longer than you think it'll be because you don't know what's going to be involved exactly. You know. So like 
it was all, you know, we had a certain schedule, you know, according to Western standards, we had to do this much in this amount of time. And, you know, people, well, do you think we can do it in that many days? And the, the coordinator would always say, mm, maybe two more days, you know, <laughs> maybe one more day. And Keanu would say, no, we have to do it in that number of days. So, you know, we had to find ways to make that work. And now I'm sure Keanu threw a lot of things out the window they wanted to do, and that usually ended up as wire work. The wire work takes the longest, so wire work is what would be eliminated. So was, was I'll say Mr. Reeves, was Keanu um, very diligent about trying to make sure this was on time and on budget, sort of a respons yeah, no, very he, responsible filmmaking? Yes, he was part of the producing team, and he was very responsible, you know, from his end. You know, he, he definitely wanted to be on time and, you know, be economically responsible. It's great. Yeah. I mean, Keanu, I really have to uh, commend him. He was totally prepared. He was the hardest working guy. He'd have notebooks, stack of notebooks for each scene, each, you know, for fights, for characters, for production design, you know, for camera. He, you know, he was really, it's like of all the films he worked on and he's watched, he's very film literate. Mm -hmm. And, you know, had tons of references for this movie. And he really, you know, tried to invoke all that information, you know, to use it to whittle it down to what's apropos for his movie. What were some of the references that he kept coming back to? Oh, we, our iPads, we all had iPads and, and they were full of tens of fight scenes, you know, that yep. he had his assistants pull out. Um, Keanu and I would watch movies, you know, we'd sit and watch movies. This was a Come drink with me? <laughs> Come drink with me. I don't remember Come Drink With Me. That, that wasn't in there? Lance no. Hardsman? No. no. But we had a lot of movies of all types of things. You know, we had Japanese movies for family relations because, you know, the... Um, the lead actor was had it was in a family situation a lot, mm -hmm. in terms of his character. We had uh, a lot of fight sequences from the last probably everything from Enter the Dragon on. Um, we videoed all the fight sequences were videoed ahead of time too, so we could study them. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So and that was also put on our iPads. That's so kind of like a different version of Previs. Yeah. Uh, yeah. It was a real previous. So right. the we our fighters would do it, and then the they would the fight team would video it, and then we would analyze that you know about what we want to do and and can do, and the fighting was not just fighting in Keanu's mind. The fighting was actually an emotional character development. Each fight was meant to be as a dialogue scene. In other words. That fight was to show evolution of the character, not just right. an action sequence in the right. movie. Well, that's, that's fantastic because yeah. it's like, you know, the old problem with musicals is like there's a little bit of progression of a story and then all of a sudden it stops and we explain exactly what's just happened for five yeah. minutes in a song just, and then, as opposed to keeping the, the story evolving through the song, right? Yeah. Which is what you're describing. Right. This, the medium, was the message. Got it. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like a really cool picture. Yeah, I we'll think be cutting it in by the time. Well, when's it being released? Uh, I don't know. I've heard anywhere from you know early summer to fall, so I don't know. The, right now, it's being um, readied for possible uh, inclusion in con. 
yeah. and Toronto. So I don't know what the upshot that's going to be. Well, if it's at Toronto, we'll just we'll just, we'll just videotape it in the theater and bootleg the theater. Because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> we're Canadian. Okay, so let's go back in time now to um, a real masterpiece. Not a movie that's going to come out, a movie that did come out and that um, took a little bit of time for the public to realize what kind of a masterpiece it was, but eventually it came out. The Cutting Edge. Oh, the cutting edge. Wow. Yes. Very early in my career. Yeah. No, but it was it, okay. But let's let's be frank. This is a, I think it's used. This movie's held up as a, a study in business school, because apparently the person at whatever studio it was had no budget to market it, and it became. That was MGM. MGM had, did a phenomenal job of marketing it, opening it in certain centers, and working on the marketing with little. Um. What. I was getting a cue. I guess I had a growth coming out of my forehead. You know, like, do I have a growth? I wouldn't tell you. It wouldn't tell you did. Yeah, I know. I figured that. <laughs> Sneaky. No, but um, uh, it, it just became this this whole a huge success. It became a huge success. The Cutting Edge, and it looks great. The movie looks great. Shooting. I mean, shooting with these actors who I don't know how much they could actually skate or not. What I mean, and you got to get footage on the ice. You got to get them looking like they're falling. You for sure. I mean, there's one sequence. You know, the like the the uh, Karate Kid version of of uh, doing a drop kick to the face here is a, some kind mm-hmm. of insane throw that nobody would ever in their right mind do with figure skaters as a couple. But um, how did how did you shoot? Was it just like a lot, a lot of figuring it out, kind of like the fighting in the movie you just referenced? Or? Yeah, I mean, that was an interesting movie because I was still finding my footing as a cameraman. And uh, it was actually the first studio-type back picture I shot. And um, they were prepared for all this rigmarole about shooting on ice, and I think they had budgeted a lot of money for that. And then the, I don't know, I guess I used, I guess... I'm one of the few cameramen in Hollywood, maybe, and I use Hollywood with quotation marks, that has been able to go back and forth between independent pictures and studio-type pictures. You have, yes. And I, th- I used my independent background to say, okay, what if I didn't have any money? How would I do this picture? And so the key grip and I were having coffee one day, and then we figured it out. Yeah, we'll just build a big plywood ramp out of and out of uh, speed rail, which is steel tubing, fill it with plywood, put a, a a platform on the end so the actors can stand on it, and pin it in the ice and spin it like a big hands of a clock. And wherever we were along that, because we could be anywhere along that we wanted to be, and that would determine how fast the background went and depend what lenses. So if we're in the middle where the point of rotation was, and we used a long lens, it's going to go very fast. And as we move up towards them, depending what kind of lens we use, it either slows up or closer to them or whatever. And then we could get right up in their face because we could stand right there. So the whole idea, again, this is building on the whole, as we talked about earlier, about the subjective experience. We didn't want to do... And this is a lot of this credit goes to Paul Michael Glazer because in my interview I talked about this. Of course, I was bullshitting to try and get the job because right. I didn't have any reference. But he he got into that because he's an actor's director, and I really loved Paul, and um, he really worked with those actors tough. And um, we tried to make that experience of being with an ice skater because traditionally, if you look at the Olympics, you look at all this stuff. The cameras are on the outside. 
shooting in yes. long lenses and things like that. 800 mil, whatever. So we went exactly opposite to that. We tried to get up in their face to read them and be with them, as well as, you know, and so even when we were shooting the shooting, like I just talked about, from inside the ring, it was all from inside the ring. We shot very rarely from outside the ring. Looking at... Yeah, except to be some kind of establishing shot with the stadium. Right. And then we also... Uh, trained uh, an Olympic skater to use a, um, a pogo cam so that he could go right along with the skaters. Pogo cam being... He, you know, it's a, you know, like a doggy cam. It's on a, a post. And Was, But does it have a blade itself or no? No, no. It's free. So he skated with them. And he, oh, but because there's momentum while he's skating, it's basically kind of like a like a half steady cam. It's like cam. yeah, it's a half steady cam, uh, like that's four be, man be, steady cam, right? Because he's moving. Yeah, and it's balanced. You know, it's got and so he can go around with them. And he was the choreographer, so he knew exactly what they were going to do. So when we shot our doubles and things like that, he knew exactly what it was. He'd circle around them. He knew knew the moves they were going to make, and then we practiced with him, taught him how to do that. And then later in my career, I built on that when we did Lords of Dogtown. We did the same thing. We, did, we took a skater with the skateboards, and he, he took the camera and skated Into, behind people. Yeah, in the pit. Now, for sure, you must have wrecked some cameras and lenses on that movie. No. Never one. No. Guy never fell once. No. That is a miracle. Because they're professional. That is, that is, <laughs> that is proof. Now, our, stand, our skaters fell. But right. our camera people never fell. Well, let's be frank. Who cares about the people in front of the camera? <laughs> yeah. performers. But, you know, so that film, so I, I really feel that in, in uh, The Cutting Edge, that was the reason that made that film successful because people were able to hook into the actors through the skating instead of objectively just looking at somebody skate. So let's talk about one specific sequence in there, which we were just talking about before you got here because I think... You know, of all the 300 people in this room, all of them are major, major cutting-edge fans. <laughs> no, I mean, like, the, you know, Emily back there and Alexis, like, sort of weaned on that movie. Oh, it's um, a big cult movie. Oh, uh, it's a cult movie. Thing. It's a cult movie. Let's talk about Topic, right? <laughs> you see a lot of shots of D.B. Sweeney falling, right? So could he actually skate, or was it just, you know, like, no, just, okay, this is perfect. He has to be falling, so just let him skate and he'll fall. No, no, he learned to skate in that movie, I believe. I'm thinking back now, this is 1991. He was taught to skate well. Paul Paul Michael Glazer played hockey in college. Oh, okay, well, that helps. Yeah. yeah, so he was able to facilitate, you know, honing his skating. More, same with Moira Kelly. In fact, Moira Kelly broke her leg halfway through that movie. Skating. So, yeah, I don't know if she broke it skating or not. She just, she broke it. Uh, I can't remember the exact circumstance, but she was not able to skate because before that in the movie she was skating, and so we, then we had to shoot her with a broken leg. So what did you do? Well, that's where that mechanism I was talking about helped because we could move in and shoot her from the waist up or the thighs up, and and you felt you were like right with her, but she, you know she wasn't skating. Great chemistry between the two actors too. Yeah, I mean, that's due to Paul Michael Glazer, right? He really worked with them. He was not going to let um, a bad performance come out of them in his mind. He 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 milked them for all he could get. Well, it just it's one of these movies that works, you know. Like when yeah. you know, like a, you know, 
you know, it's a classic trope, but at the end of the movie, they finally kiss, and it's it's an earned kiss. You know, yeah. it feels like it had great chemistry to it. Yeah, um, he really supported them. What was it? What was it like for you seeing the movie? You know, come out and and sort of have that weird evolution from a small movie to a bigger movie to you know something that people because the studio thought it was just going to fail. Hmm. The, stu- the studio, from what I understand, MGM hmm. was not prepared to put anything behind it. They just thought it was going to be be a dog and die but it slowly became this was it was it really exhilarating or you know I don't really remember that because I was probably on to another the movie, movie. <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know I, I hope every movie becomes a hit yeah but I've had several I've shot several movies that are like that the studios or distributors weren't prepared to distribute them well after they got recognition or caught on you know that's just because of people who make uh finance those movies and distribute them are not filmmakers. Right. So, you know, because if they were and they were really plugged into what the audiences wanted to see, they'd make more hits. Right. Right. (laughs) How can you make 400 movies a year or have 400 movies released in the United States and have so many misses? Right. Because nobody knows anything is what Goldman says. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, so um, about uh, just about those scenes in the rinks because you, that's great description of the rig and everything. Do you have stills of that, by the way? I personally don't, but I'm sure there. This is before digital iPhones. We're, 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 like, we're going to have to get some stills of that yeah. just just to put it up on the screen. But um, how did you light the rinks? How did you light? You know, because so, a lot of the movie takes place in the rink. A lot of the movie takes place outside the rink. Like there's scenes in her house and her estate. Uh, when they're fighting over the music, you know, you know. Well, what we did was, I tried to again be minimal. What I, when, and we also had to use the same rink to make different ranks. Right, which is a, out of economy. The same thing with often with boxing movies, I'll have yeah. to make the same boxing ring look like it's yeah. in three different stadiums exactly. or something like that. I mean, the production designer on that movie was a very good production designer, David Gropman, and a lot of credit goes to David for you know he was very thoughtful and talented, and he uh, helped us a lot that way uh, because it's not just camera, it's production design and how we shoot the different scenes. And um, what I did was I tried to, again, focus on the skaters, and so what I did was I surrounded the, and this is probably not a true Olympic uh, lighting situation, but... I tried to have beams of light come down on the skater, so I used follow spots all around and used the reflection of the ice to bounce off and light them. So it did a lot of things. I put some smoke in the steam and it created these beautiful shafts of light, and then I just had to use bounce cards back on them or fluorescent light to simulate that, you know, lightweight lighting, and that allowed me to get onto the rig and simulate that kind of light, and then... As they went around the stadium, they were hit with these backlights or the hot light goes across them. So it had an exciting, you know, a dramatic kind of look to it. Cool. Well, it's a, you know, what can I say? How many people can say they, 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 they shot a cult picture? <laughs> cult classic. Um, let's go forward a few years, or at least I think it's a few years from there, out of sight. Yeah. So now we're talking about Steven Soderbergh, who... But before that movie, Stephen and I, that was the fourth movie I shot with Stephen. Right. And before that, you know, he had a lot of critical success. Uh, of course, he made his first splash with uh, Sex, Lies, and Videotape. Of course, yeah. 
But that was then, Walt Lloyd, I think. Yeah, Walt, Walt Lloyd shot that. Yeah. But then he had a, a, a critical, critical success at Cannes in Europe with uh, King of the Hill, which garnered a lot of critical attention. But right. again, it was one of those things, a miscalculation by the studio. And they couldn't get the screens to distribute the movie after it got all that critical acclaim. So it kind of went totally under the radar. But that movie... You know, if you go on the internet, IMDb, you'll see that movie is very, very highly ranked. Mm-hmm. And it's it drives a lot of people nuts because they can't get hold of it. It's not even on DVD. It really is not available. Yeah. It's yeah. Ins- I cannot understand that, how a movie like that cannot be on DVD. So it actually, like, was it in Director's Fortnight or in, in certain It was regard? in the official competition. It's in the official competition. I, didn't, I did not know that about the picture. Yeah, and that was a very beautiful movie, I thought. Sensitive. One, one, of, your, one of your favorites? It is one of my favorites in terms of capture, capturing a mood, you know, with a child. And um, I'm not sure it's one of Stephen's favorite because his mind was going ahead to other movies or other feelings he wanted to get. But you know, when you look at that as a piece of work, I think it's a you know beautiful little story, you know, a little gem. I think that maybe in, when Stephen reflects back on it, he'll say, you know, that movie's better than I thought. <laughs> What were the other two pictures between Out of Sight and King of the Hill that you We shot The Underneath, which was a remake of, or based on Crisscross, the Burt Lancaster film noir movie. Right. And, Crisscross, uh, which yeah, is which also pulls a lot from uh, Scarlet Street, I think, because the name of the main character in that. Yeah. yeah. But that was, you know, interesting. Uh, I'm not sure if that's the first movie Stephen did like this, but we had like four timelines going. Yeah. So we had developed looks for all the timelines. They were intercut. So... It's yeah. a very non-linear movie. And he wants it very specific, too, with the looks. Yeah, well, we had very specific looks, you know. Uh, again, I think we did one of the first things that times had ever been done. We shot, we took ectochrome stock, reversal stock, and cross-processed, cross-processed it. it. You were one of, that was back That's when? F- that was 1996. And I think that was the first time that was ever done in a feature film. Right. And then Spike Lee... Called up and asked, "Yeah, how did you do that?" that and, and then, then Clockers—he used, he used it in Clockers. Clockers was the whole movie was cross-processed reversal stock, and then I think uh, Three Kings was also. Yeah, it was like a third, a third, a third. One movie was one third of the movie was Skip Bleach, and one third was cross-process reversal, and one third was just regular. Yeah. So again, you know, we broke new ground doing that. That's cool. So how did that idea come about to do that? To do a cross-process reversal? You know, I was just looking for ways to differentiate that were fresh, you know. I mean, now you could look at, uh, you know, if you looked at traffic, Stephen used that in traffic, that kind of look. Or you look at even things like CSI, they used that kind of look in CSI. Yeah. But at that time... They also have uh, two sons in every room in CSI. <laughs> you saw that. Yeah. But in that time, at that time, again, we're dealing with film, not right. digital. We had to make the look. Yes. We had to actually make it. Yes. So, you know, I experimented a lot. And, um, you know, so that became one of the extreme looks of the, of the four timelines. You know, so from there on, I could, I could differentiate, you know, degrees. Were you surprised? This is one of these things, cross-processing reversal stock. And I'm glad, I'm glad you mentioned this because I didn't, I wasn't going to planning on asking about this picture or that, that, that timeline of it. But um, one of the effects is that the colors can be completely, they can either be like close to what it actually is, but just, 
heavier, or it could be completely different. Well, they don't use the film Ectochrome is biased a certain way, but again, we're talking about analog, you know, photochemical processing. Right. So the stock itself has a bias, which is toward yellow, and of course, I wanted it to go blue green. <laughs> so I'm putting. You know, filters, blue filters on the camera. So you're filtering it blue-green. Yeah, to and help it, to help it, because in timing, I know I'm going to shift it that way. Uh-huh. And so we were also, you know, this was very early on in Kinoflow's development, and my gaffer, Chris Porter, was a very good friend of, of Frieder, who developed Kinoflow's. So through Chris, we had access to a lot of Kinoflow's, so it was one of the first films, probably, that we were using a lot of Kinoflow's, and I would color the Kino flows with blue-green gel to light in. And, um, or I put different colors on the Kino flow. I'd mix them. So when the actor turned one way, he'd catch one color, and then he'd turn this way, and he'd catch another color from the gels on the Kino. So, and uh, then it got cross-processed. Then it'd be cross-processed. Wow. And I also did that, of course, on non-cross-processed stuff. And yeah. then we, we, gelled the ins- we gelled the windows of the, we cut out, had green plexiglass made and put those on the windows of the of the armored car vehicle. So inside of wow. the inside of the yeah. vehicle was green in, in that world. So when you look through it, it's green. Every time you look out the vehicle, it's green, and then inside the vehicle, the light is green. So you went right for it. Yeah. Well, because we've interviewed also Ed Lockman, mm-hmm. who shot the Limey with. I mean, I think it was maybe two pictures after Out of Sight or the next picture after Out of Sight. And he also said, you know, like, you know, we talked about one scene that was in fluorescence, and I said, I don't think you removed the green. No, we probably added green. (laughs) So this is the sort of thing that Steven Soderbergh likes to do, apparently. Yeah, well, Steven had learned a lot from working on Out of Sight and the underneath, you know what I mean? Yeah. By the time he he was working with Ed, yeah, he had been through this, you know, so in his mind, you know, he... He utilized a lot of that stuff we did, you know what I mean? Yeah. And he, um, he embraced it. And so even though I wasn't shooting it, he, would, he had those tools in his head. You know, he saw how it was done. Because yeah. he had asked me to shoot the lime, and I, at that time I was shooting Forces of Nature. I couldn't, couldn't, do, it. couldn't do it. But I know in terms of Stephen's thinking, he, you know, he likes to build on what he knows. And so that he used that vocabulary, you know, right. I mean, he applied it. And then, of course, after Ed became Peter, Peter, uh, Peter Andrews. Yes. <laughs> we're trying to get Peter Steven. Andrews. We're trying to get Peter Andrews here, actually, believe it or not. Yeah. Well, Stephen, you know, yeah. um, you know, a little anecdote was I remember at the end of Out of Sight, Stephen was sitting on the stairs at the big house where we had the big fight, and mm-hmm. Stephen turned to me and goes, you know, Elliot, I, I don't feel like I'm doing anything. You know, you have the camera, you do all the lighting, the production designer's got, you know, their job, everybody's got their job, but me, I'm just, like, watching, you know, observing, <laughs> watching. <laughs> so you're saying this is where it started, this moment? Yeah, he was already germinating it, because he, he, you have to remember, in Stephen's world, his life, he'd also done independent movies yeah. in between these other movies, Schizopolis and yeah. things like that, which he shot himself anyway. So he'd always been shooting his uh, small personal projects as he went along. So it's not such a big leap as people think. He, yeah. he had, you know, in a way, been preparing himself for that, I think. Right. He just didn't have the, the big-time experience, you know, of, uh, of a bigger production doing it. So 
I think he was gathering the information, you know, watching how it works and the interactions, you know, because Stephen's a very smart person. And, you know, and by the time he was done with Aaron Brockovich, he was ready to do it. Yeah. Well, that's actually a good analysis. Um, out of sight. Fantastic looking picture. Totally different from from uh, the other stuff. Like, just com- completely different. Um, it has, uh, it, although I do think it, it's connected to the Limey and Aaron Brockovich and some of the films that followed of Stevens in that it has that uh, really strong overexposed feeling, of, you know, at certain points. Just at certain points, it's a very strong backlight or a very strong... Was that a conscious decision? Was it, was it something that happened or was it, you know... No, everything... I have to say, you know, for me as an artist, I'm an artist first and a cinematographer second. Cool. It's just what I do, yeah. cinematography. And if I weren't doing cinematography, I'd You'd do, do something, something else. else. You'd sculpt, okay. Yeah, yeah. or I'd make buildings. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. I mean, everything is conscious. Right. Even if it's an accident, it's a conscious uh, decision to let that go. Let it in. Um, for instance, the out of sight is really for films. Yes. Each location is its own look. So there's the jail. There's the jail in, in Louisiana. There's, there's the prison in uh, L.A. Yeah, there, there's Clooney Detroit. and Lopez's story as its own. Right, but that occurs all over. Yeah. Right. But there's the film moves from um, Miami, Detroit, Los Angeles, uh, and uh, the jail in Louisiana, yeah. Angora. Angola, excuse me, Angola State Prison. So we moved around a lot, and each of these were given specific looks. And those looks were all pre-planned, every single one of them. Let's, let's talk about the specific looks. The, the, the Angola prison was, it was a strong yellow, I think? Yeah, Angola, Angola had a very strong tint to it. Um, it was, but it was also night and day. It, we used the sodium vapor look at that time, a very strong kind of, we used a strong yellow, which we juxtaposed a lot of times to cold light, blue light. And like, if you remember in that, there were some very striking magic hour shots with deep blue skies. Tremendous and magic hour shots, yeah. Yeah, which we also prepared for because you have to really plan for those. Um, there was a whole magic hour sequence around the prison break, and then the actual break takes place at night. Um, the 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 um, the prison yard in out here in Los Angeles area that was uh, overexposed. Uh, the film was pushed and overexposed to stop, and then then it was uh, exposed for the shadows and then printed back down. Oh, so you expose? You're saying when you shot it, you exposed for the shadows, meaning everything else was way out. Yeah, and then you would bring it back down. But those a lot of those. Well, depending on what stock was, those highlights would be crushed anyway. Well, the highlights would burn. Burn, yeah. And then, so I had the shadow detail, and then I crushed that back down to where I wanted it. Awesome. Yeah, so that allowed me a certain freedom to shoot in the yard, as long as I kept them in backlight. Um, you know, and then Detroit, you know, was a specific kind of cold blue look that was consistent through that yep. whole sequence. yep. And then Miami was a, a more saturated uh, turquoises and yellows and um, you know uh, you know pinks you know 
you know, what you would expect in South Beach type thing. And it's a gorgeous looking picture. So it's just a few a few sequences I want to ask about. The trunk the trunk ride sequence is one of the most I mean, you know, it's so great when there's a real story motivation for something to happen and then the chemistry is just working. I don't you know, maybe I get in trouble for saying this. I don't think Lopez Jennifer Lopez has ever been better in a movie than in that movie. I think that mm-hmm. is far and away her best performance. Um did it just kind of? I mean, was it? Was it? How did that shooting that sequence come about with the with the with the chemistry that it that it had? Let's see. Again, we're going back yeah. a long time, but you know, they they were very professional. You know, Jennifer and George. You know, and they did what they were supposed to do. Um, you know, I can never be inside actors' minds right. about what they think of each other. But they acted the way they were supposed to act. You know what I mean? In terms of how they felt about each other, I can't really say we'd have to ask George and Jennifer. Right. You know, but I think that when it came time to act, they were they were good together. And uh, you know, when I first read that scene in the script, I said, "My God, how am I going to do this?" And I just racked my brains about how to come up with little pieces of sword slides inside that trunk, bleed light from the from the tail lights, you know, coming on and off. Yep. And yep. Just, you know, flashlights bouncing off off surfaces in the trunk to light people and you know so um, You'd probably use cell phones today if you LED sources. Yeah, except I don't know. The scene didn't call for her speaking on the phone. Right? No, she no, I'm saying you'd physically use them as lights or oh, like light panels. Oh, you could panels. use them as lights. Yeah, yeah, we could use light panels, right? Yeah. But that just still would have been the same light uh, source. It just would have been a different film source, but it would have had to feel about the same thing. You know yeah. what I mean? And um, feel like it was coming from the same source. I mean, um, so that was a difficult scene, but I thought it was. You know, brilliant. Oh, it's brilliant. And, um, yeah. you know... Is it all in one shot? Is it all in one? No, no, it's not all in one shot. There are some cuts there. There are some cuts in there, okay. Yeah. I'm going to memory. And, uh, yeah. And then, uh, but it was five pages in there. And then, you know, that film, when you speak about accidents, um, in the very beginning, we were shooting in Miami. In my mind, George Clooney was Cary Grant. When yep. I looked through that camera, I saw Cary Grant. right. Even the way George looked, you know, I could just superimpose him over Cary Grant. I tried to light him that way and treat him that way. I never shared that with anybody, but that's that was my character motivation. Thanks for sharing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> and, um, and I remember when we were outside the bank where he held right. off the robbery. Was held in, yeah. Yeah, yeah. That zoom and flares and everything was... Uh, taking advantage of the accidental light at that time we were shooting. That really wasn't planned. I remember Stephen said, can we do anything special to this? And in my inimitable way, I just, because I operate in all my movies, I I just grabbed hold of that 12 to 1 zoom, 11 to 1 Panavision zoom, and just grabbed it and just crashed it in on George. Went through the flyer and crashed it in on George, and she was, oh yeah, I like that. And then we tried to incorporate that kind of feeling in the whole sequence. And well, it's actually so, an unforgettable shot. It's yeah. a complete, you see the movie once, and you will never forget him running out of the front of the bank, 
Um, I think he runs it twice. First when he's frustrated and once when he goes back in to rob it, right? Yeah. And you'll never forget him throwing his tie down and just yeah. being... The camera crashes in on yeah. him. And, and, you know, it goes through the light and it just feels like uh, there's a certain uh, cosmic force coming in on him. You know, and yeah, it, and it is a part of the visual language of the movie, yeah. actually, the rest yeah. of the movie. It launches the film. Yeah. You know, and Stephen was totally open to that and embraced it, you know, and it gave the camera a certain freedom after that. that oh, and so it was early in the schedule that you were shooting? Early in the schedule. Oh, that's yeah. great. That's a great story. Um, one of those sequences, I don't know, there's an apocryphal story about it, I don't know if it's true, but the actual love scene that happens later between Clooney and Lopez. In the uh, hotel. With the undressing. Yeah, that's... The story is that the studio said you can't, do, you can't just show them undressing separately. Like, no one's going no to like that. And, that, and that Steven Soderbergh said, no, 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 trust me, this is going to be yeah. amazing. I don't remember what came down from the studio. I remember there was a certain directive came down from the studio about how to shoot Jennifer Lopez. <laughs> right. Uh, which would sound, which would sound. <laughs> Are you serious? Uh, yeah, I'm serious. Uh, which would sound insulting now. So I'm. I don't know if I want to commit it to. It was purely physical, right? It purely was, physical. Yeah. It, it, right now, it'd be considered very sexist if I said it. So, so it not okay. from my end, but from their end. A, a studio run by men, of course. Right. So um, that whole sequence was actually based on, as a reference, "Don't Look Now." It's funny, we, I just mentioned the same love sequence. I think, actually, it's Rennie Harlan holds that up as one of his favorite scenes of all time. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a fabulous love scene. Yeah. So, but there, but th- that was referenced from that, actually. Yeah. Because when Donald Sutherland and Julie Christie are getting dressed and, you know, and they're cutting back and forth, and it was based on that. Thank you for that insight. Yeah, which you can see now. You, you can now it. now now that the minute you said it and I think about it, I go, okay, right, yeah, I can see that. That's very cool. Yeah, and it worked. I thought extremely well. Oh, it's it's yeah. it's just a fantastic sequence. That you know, whole four it. or five minute sequence to me is like a little movie. Yeah, it's like a short, yeah, a perfect short too. Um, cool. So flash forward uh, a few more years. Now I just want to make sure. I Leave anything out. Okay, so, oh yeah, can we ask about I Am Sam? Yeah, I Am Sam. I Am Sam, to me, was a very special movie. And, you know, I, I had the privilege of also working with Sean Penn and Michelle Pfeiffer. That was unbelievable. Right. <laughs> so, and this was Jesse Nelson's, um, I believe it was her first film directing. She'd been a writer on some film. Or she might have directed another film. I can't remember. You'd have to look up her IMD. But anyway, it was the first kind of major thing she'd done. And that film was a very interesting creative process because we actually used the video assist as a sketching tool. In other words, we would shoot things and then she would watch that and say, oh, yeah, I'd like to do more of this, more of that, you know. And then, again, it was that feedback, creative process feedback thing. And Sean Penn was very much into elevating Every no two takes were the same. He'd elevate the whole scene every time. He would do something different, or that's great because that's something, something that you want. You know, filmmakers yeah. want actors to do, and sometimes it's like, oh no, no, he was unbelievable. You know, in terms of elevating his character, and I think everybody was in awe of that. 
including myself. And I think that was the first film also. I have so many firsts, right? That was the first film that was shot with all handheld zooms. We used the short zooms um, that were not really considered feature film quality lenses because they were from still cameras, Minolta lenses. You used Minolta still zooms? Yeah. On which body? On like a, a movie On a Panaflex. You put Minolta, so then how did you Panavision pull- had these zooms. They had outfitted them for cameras, but nobody used them. They were considered low grade, you know, the optics in them, of course, because they weren't set for, this is before the Ingenieur Optimos came out a few years ago, right. which are now so hot, right? Yeah. But these were the breakthroughs, you know, we had those as handheld lightweight zooms. So how heavy, like you're talking like only four or five yeah. pounds of length? Yeah, they're very light. And and they had, you could pull folk, they had... Yeah. And so I came to those because, again, if you, what we talked about before, the subjective experience of my contribution to the film. So I was looking for any way to make the camera more subjective, uh, to be inside a mentally challenged person's head. So I used that camera, which then later became the base, those lenses later became the basis of 13. I because there is a connection between the, yes. there is the, the visuals. between Again, like there's some of I Am Sam is more composed and thought out, yeah. but 13 is a completely, because uh, there is a connection. I was watching both. Yeah. So, so I, am, I Am Sam became the building block for, for giving me confidence to do that. Okay, well, that's great, because we're going to talk about 13 in a second. It answers my question about the visual aesthetic of 13. It already does, but let's go back. I am Sam. You get the script. Is it the saddest thing you've ever read? Well, you know, it's, it, I don't know if it was sad, but it was moving. It is you know, so... I mean, I, I just had a daughter, you know, uh, nine months ago, and I'm watching this movie. It's so sad. I, just, I, I, I can't, you know, like, I don't want to... I'm not trying to exaggerate but it's just it's so you know heart wrenching and touching and all these things you know um, was it uh, emotional to make the movie or, or is it yeah, just yeah it was a very emotional experience and uh, Sean and Michelle were very vested in the movie and uh, as was Jesse and it was really I want to say a very closely knit group between the camera Jesse and the two actors they were very interactive and who played the little girl again? I forgot. Uh, Dakota Fanning. Oh, yeah. Well, she was totally precocious. Right. <laughs> and so, and it was just like any time she hit the screen, did you could see the. Uh, did you see her picking up? A, I've asked this to other photographers who have shot kids, mm-hmm. and how sometimes in their first movie they sort of slowly pick up the cues about how this whole thing works, and then they start to master it a little bit over the course of the movie. She hit the ground running. She hit the ground running. Yeah. Dakota she Fanning. Was very very intelligent and um, I don't remember a learning curve with her <laughs> you know <laughs> she just right. she hit it and you know she's here acting with Sean Penn and Michelle Pfeiffer and she just went right in there and did it right maybe right. she didn't realize what she had jumped into she just you know sometimes when you don't know what you're doing you just do the greatest job because yeah. there's no mental obstacles right She's not intimidated by anything. She just went in and did what she was supposed to do, and you know, very, very uh, disciplined. The lighting in I Am Sam is very, um, very flattering. It's very beautiful. 
forgot the whole movie. Was this a conscious thing that you were going to use these, these, these zooms to put your, the, like compositionally put us in the middle of the world of this person, make it a little bit not confusing, but a little bit, you know, uh, off-putting in edgy, a way, yeah. edgy. And then you were going to make the light all really flattering. Was that? Well, I had a little bit of thing there. You can't just throw Michelle Pfeiffer out there and not support her. It's the same thing with Iron Lady, right? You can't put Meryl uh, Streep out there and not support an actress of that caliber. And so that's the thing the producers and filmmakers uh, always have to realize. If Yes, it's a big coup to get an actor like that, but then you can't treat them like they're some low-budget you know, entity. And I think on, on even on Iron Lady, the producers were not really prepared for what it took to light Meryl Streep to make her look that way. You know, like in Iron Lady, it ended up being there's two movies. There's Meryl's movie, you know, when she's playing uh, Thatcher, and there's the rest of the movie when she's not in it. Right. But, and I like to think that's the reason I was there. <laughs> you know, so now if you take that, that was flashing forward. If you go back to Michelle Pfeiffer, she's what I cut my teeth on to, to do Meryl. So Michelle you know, in my camera tests and stuff, I treated her a certain way, which was I basically built a, a, a shell around uh, Michelle. That, a shell of light. A shell of light that was in the angle of her, the reflected angular pieces of her face to light her. So if you looked at her as a sculpture, you know, her face would have a plane going this way, at this angle, this angle, this angle. And I made sure that the lights were there to reflect that softness on her face, you know, to reflect the whiteness of the, of the lights. And you carried the shell through every scene she was in. Yeah, even if she moved, that went with her. So if you had a picture of her walking down a hallway, there'd be five electricians and grips walking with that with her so that she maintained that ethereal quality. That's going to some pretty, not extreme, but that's going to some pretty stiff lengths. Yeah, to but, make sure that you're doing what you think is necessary. Yeah, and it is necessary whether people like it or not. Now, now with digital, of course, you could say, well, maybe we don't have to do so much, but we'll throw it to the digital realm and they'll fix her. They'll, they'll you know, fix lines in her face, but you have to pay for that too. Either way, you're going to be paying for things. This was before digital. This is 2001. So, you know, I needed to do that to do my job. Well, I think it's very commendable that you saw the saw the avenue and you took it and you and you said I I think this is necessary. This is because it's a very sort of old school, actually, in a way, studio mentality. Uh, you know, from the early days, saying you know the act, the, 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 she's the star and she's got to look beautiful. And that's yeah, all there is to it. But that's also she's your asset. You have to protect your asset. That that's who people are coming to see, mm-hmm. and the actors also respect that. They know when they're being taken care of by cinematographer, and they know cinematographers who don't know what they're doing, because most of these people have worked with cinematographers who do know what they're doing. So when a cinematographer comes along who doesn't, it stands out to them. Why? Oh, don't I need a light there? Don't I need a light there? You hear the stories about actresses looking in mirrors and see how they look and saying, I don't like the way I'm being lit. There's all those kind of stories, and that's why old uh, actresses from olden times, not old actresses, specified cinematographers in their contract. They married Pickford at Charles Rocher, right. blah, 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 because they knew those cinematographers took care of them. And like in an old movie, you'll see when it's 
that whole thing. Uh, I'm ready for my close-up, Mr. DeMille. Mill. <laughs> That's because in those days, yeah. they didn't have the mobility we did, and the actress would be there, and she'd be locked down. They'd have all their shadow gobos to shadow their faces and put the light across their eyes. Those actresses couldn't move because they were lit for that close-up that everybody paid their money to see. You know, so in the sense, that is the tradition of the Hollywood actress relationship to cameramen. This is so often why you hear about theoretical love stories between actresses and their DPs because they know that those DPs, you know, care about them, at least in the sense that whatever it takes to make them successful, good, because then they're both successful. Right. It's a symbiotic relationship. That is a cool story. Thank you for sharing that. Any other parts of I Am Sam that you, I mean, we talked about relating Michelle Pfeiffer. Obviously, Sean Penn was brilliant, and you can get away a little bit more with a man, yeah. but, you know, different, different types of light. Um, is there anything else about the movie that sort of stands out to you as, as being sort of was a challenge to, to, to work through, but you were proud with the results? Well, many of the um, secondary characters in that were mentally challenged people. They were real right. mental, uh, uh, mentally, mental patients or however you want to call it. I mean, not like they had to be hospitalized, but they were challenged. You know, challenged. And so Sean was surrounded by those people. And there was one actor, I believe, of his group that was an actor who really pulled off uh, the um, mental retardation very well, but the other people were real. And that was his, his group, his com- comrades. And so, the, you know, working with them and, and making it safe for them, that was a real challenge, you know. And also making it safe for Sean. You know, Sean is a very high-intensity actor, totally involved in his work and totally in character. He liked to be called Sam. He didn't want to be called Sean. Whenever he was around the movie set, he was Sam. He tried to stay in character all the time. And he would act like Sam would act if things didn't go his way or he thought something wasn't, didn't do him justice, you know. He, he could cry. Oh, so he would actually, like, throw a fit if... I wouldn't say throw a fit. No, I, he I, would, that was putting it the wrong way. Yeah, he, he, he would, would emote. You know, yeah. he was he was being that kind. So he would of actually sort of yeah. react react to the frustration that the actor was feeling in yeah. the character's yeah. language. Would practice that character, you know, and much like Meryl Light was too when she was dressed as Margaret Thatcher. She's on the set. She is Margaret Thatcher, and the British actors said that about her. They said she is Margaret Thatcher, and that's not a lightweight thing considering the actors she was around and the quality of British actors. Um, you know, they applauded her. Wow. And, and you know, Sean Penn, same, same way. You know, I mean, not that he had a whole coterie of actors to applaud him, but, you know, you could tell, you know, in my mind, I was applauding him. Yeah. Wow. An incredibly moving, touching... I, I, I have trouble watching it just because it's one of these movies that makes me feel mm-hmm. so sad. That uh, mm-hmm. Anyway, but, it, but it's a great movie. Um we should talk about White Oleander, but I, I think we have to jump forward a bit. 13. Oh, 13. Okay. So 13 is kind of ahead of its time photographically. Right. Uh, but in a way, you need to talk about White Oleander just for one second. Okay, talk about White Oleander. Do White it. Oleander was also all handheld. 
Right. Because Peter Kosminski, the director of that, was a documentary director. And when he came on, he wanted everything to be handheld immediate. So again, that's a movie. But you didn't use the same lensing that you did. Um, I believe I did use those lenses also, okay. but it, they weren't necessarily always the primary lenses. But I needed to because of the handheld aspect, and we did use Steadicam sometimes. But the camera was always floating in motion. Uh, any kind of dolly shots we do handheld, uh, except when we needed to use Steadicam. We went into cars, we were all handheld, and Peter, coming from a documentary background, we didn't light any cars, we didn't use process trailers, you know, put the cars or tow them. Actors drove and were in there shooting with them. So the reality basis of that film, in a way, you can see, would be also a stepping stone. You can see how the films evolve to 13, for me, as right, an artist, right. as a cinematographer. And White Oleander is tremendously beautiful picture as well yeah um let's talk about 13 mm -hmm. so this movie is is kind of ahead of its time photographically because you know for example um it's maybe a bit of an awkward comparison but we had brendan troster shot crank too and you know wide lenses in the face constantly you know moving around <clears throat> this movie it it is unquestionably shot on film but it has, and I'm saying this in no way uh, pejoratively, almost a video camera aesthetic to it because you're right there. Mm -hmm. And it's so unabashed with all the performances. Um, and the house with this awkward kitchen and you know all the extended rooms off, it sort of becomes this central, probably about 60% of the movie takes place in that house. It feels like it anyway. Yeah. And when I went back to watch the movie, my memory of the movie was, oh, it's psychedelic. But there was a lot of psychedelicness to it, which is really only a few sequences. A lot of it is just very, very, almost feels like it's unlit. Um, we, we just sort of like, what was, I mean, it was an independent movie. It's a production designer turned director, Catherine Hardwick, correct? And it was, I think it was her first picture. How, tell us about making the movie. Just tell us about making the movie. Hmm, yeah, that movie is probably a turning point in my life, <laughs> in, in, artistically. Um, because in that movie, I felt like no boundaries. Didn't want there to be any limits, just wanted it to be experiential, as did Catherine, you know. Uh, we toyed with shooting video, but again, this is 2003, video wasn't highly developed, it was kind of very video-y. So we went to Super 16, mm -hmm. Aton Super 16s. And again, we had handheld zooms on, which were much easier in, in Super 16 land. And You operated the whole movie. Yeah, I operated the whole Must movie. Must have been grueling. It was grueling. The camera was much like, I think, what the directors of Hour of the Furnace said. You know that movie in Argentina? No. That's an Argentinian documentary from the 60s during the Perón era where these two advertising guys made a film that was one of the few films that are actually attributed to overthrowing a political system. Oh, really? They went around from factory to factory to show this film and, and used to organize workers around it about the class distinction in Argentina and how bad that was for workers. And it, it, it was a big contributor to the groundswell. Anyway... Yeah. 
Hour of the Furnace. Okay. Hour of the Furnace. Yeah. They used advertising logos between sequences, you know, and they, they did an analysis of the economic structure of Argentina. Wow. Yeah. I, when I was a graduate student at UCLA, I was introduced to that as part of third world film. Mm-hmm. But anyway, it's a little side story. I like it. I love it. <laughs> uh, anyway, um, so the immediacy was the priority in that project. And... Um, Catherine and I, Catherine being trained as an architect, and she actually built things, which I didn't do. And uh, so when we, we met, uh, I was recommended to her by somebody, and we met, and I, I sat next to her, and, and her cat jumped up on my lap. She said, that was the first good sign. The second sign, <laughs> the second sign was that we both had architectural degrees and had an architectural vocabulary. So when we started talking about visuals and structure, and create a process, we were able to communicate directly and, and make big leaps about how to approach things and, 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 and speak conceptually about what things meant and what was possible. And we both knew what that was without having to explain. So often directors don't have visual vocabularies. They don't, they're not familiar with thinking visually. And so there's always this, I want to say, gap between uh, cinematographers, even if the cinematographers are... Visual. Yeah, because not all cinematographers are either. A lot of them don't have visual backgrounds, really. They go through film school or something, but what's that? (laughs) That's just learning how to do something, but it's not about how to think about something. And it's always... You just realized you just just gave us the, the... The cold open for the for this episode. Yeah, yeah. I mean, <laughs> right the point is, bam. The point is that you need to study something else before you come to film. You need to bring something to movie. Film is just like a canvas. The question is, how do you think about things? That's the creative process. That's what distinguishes cinematographers. What is the thought process? Sure, I get the feeling there is actually a lot that you have wanted to share over a long period of time, and it's not necessarily haven't had. You know, it comes up periodically, and you want to have an interview here and there, or something like that. Yeah, but it's great. This is why I enjoy doing this because because you guys do have so much to talk about, and it is so fascinating, and it does give a totally different perspective into movies that you have a, a view of, and you know, because you never see the process, you see the, the, the you see the product which is a result of the process but it's sort of like working backwards to get the mechanics of it. Yeah because the main thing I think again is you have to always put yourself in the artist spot the the journey is the destination Yeah. Now what that destination is necessarily it's not always predictable (laughs) because that's what makes the journey so important. You have to enjoy that journey and milk that journey and you know stay in the present so you know, it's like a, this thing with digital and film, for instance, is a good example because Keanu Reeves just did this movie side by side, yep. right? Yep. And what I feel is that the analog way of thinking, of pre-visualization, imagining what things are to be, that's what's going to disappear from the new generation of cinematographers because... They don't have to use that part of the brain. Now you just turn the camera on look and at look monitor. at it yeah, and say, oh, that's too dark, too light, or we need some light there. So you're like painting by numbers. The mystery's gone. Well, it's not just the mystery. The analog way is actually making the shape, making the thing that you've got to paint, 
where the digital way is you're just painting it because the part that had to be created to be there is just there. See what I mean? Yeah. So you're missing a whole step that puts you through a creative process that makes you explore all the options and all the, all the implications of decision-making. Hmm. So if you cut that off, you're just starting, you're jumping down the line of creativity to a point where you don't have all that background information. And it's like, it's the reason why I operate the camera, because I've got that background information with the director, and I'm like a fighter pilot, you know, with stuff there shooting. And when I see something happens, I know what the director's intent is or the subtext of the scene. So I, I go for that or make that happen or try to save the shot that way or enhance it. Where if I didn't have that information, I would just record it in some way or other as I was instructed. And you would, might miss some great things. See what I mean? So that's why I never gave up operating from you know, when I was an operator because it's part of, the, of that creative flow. That operating is part of that journey. That is a, that is a fantastic analogy and, 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 and thought process you put forth because you're, you're basically saying that without the once removed of the medium, it's not the once removed, it's without the fact that the film requires a, 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 a pre-think about what's going to end up on it. You're not actually, you're saying as a photographer, you're not actually trying to achieve a result through a process of what you're doing that's going to land in a, in, into a, a basket. An unpredictable, an unpredictable basket. You're just working with exactly, you're just shaping it as, it, as it's in front yeah, of you. Yeah, which makes you more of a technician than an artist. Because think of it this way, all the great art in history has been done that way the analog way. Every great masterpiece, everything you consider great, all film, all sculpture, all painting, all architecture, is that from this point back. Plan it, execute yeah. it, see what you end up with. Yeah. You know, all the, uh, I want to say magic, and I don't mean mysterious, I mean the magic of creativity of the actual thought process is that. Is a Rube Goldberg machine to a certain degree? <laughs> I don't know. I think it's very concrete. I think the, the human creative process is a quantifiable process, you know, if they could trace it. We, our technology just isn't there. I'm sure if you could do brain scans and, and see which parts of brains light up when you're trying to solve something, just the way they've done with monks and meditation, which parts of the brain you know, um, are uh, activated as a result of meditation, why wouldn't the creative process be the same? You could probably trace electrical, electrical signals, pathways that are crea the creative pathways. Why wouldn't you be able to? Why wouldn't you be able to? Just the same way you could trace proteins and bodies and, you know, cells, what happens to, you know, food that you eat. This is what we're doing now with science and nutrition and biochemistry as part of the cure of diseases and you know how do cells mutate and change into things. They can trace the pathways. Well, aren't thoughts like that too? 
I mean, what are thoughts? Now we're getting deep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, so 4.13, getting back into 13, you decide on this aesthetic with Ms. Hardwick, with Catherine. You decide that you're going to use these wide zooms. They weren't wide zooms. Oh, they, they were, felt, really? No, okay. they were zooms that would be the equivalent of Oh, well, it's a 16-millimeter negative. Yeah. So well, would... let's say an 8 to 16 for would be equal to like a 15 or 16 to Dude. 125 or something. See, so they're, you know, a good range of zooms, not, not extreme wide shots in people's faces. No. Uh, but good capability, a good range of zooms. I only basically used two zooms for the whole ship show. Two cameras or one? Basically one camera. Just you. Yeah, and she had a friend of hers that tried to pick up things, but I was so in people's faces that that camera couldn't really get very much. Crew, uh, grip and grip and lighting crew, large, small. Oh, very small. The biggest light we had was a 4K, which since I pushed the film made it an 8K, and uh, you know you we pushed everything ready. one stop. Yeah, uh, to the, make it more gritty. The sequence. I mean, there's there's actually some sequences with a lot of characters in this. Mm-hmm. Um, they go to school. They walk around school. All like, you know, like the, everyone there was set because the feeling of it is almost like you happen to follow them to school. Yeah. Well, what we did was it's like Catherine and I planned out meticulously the angles we wanted to shoot in. We sat in that house. We sat in the schools. We made shot books of, you know, angles where possible things could play. So, so so even though it had a feeling of being free and it was just whatever that take was, it didn't it wasn't really like that. It was really planned out. It was planned out. They were given freedom within that plan. Like they could do what they wanted within that channel. Because that's where our light came from. And so if they stayed where they were supposed to, so to speak, unless they had a legitimate reason to do something else, then they were lit and taken care of and we could go from room to room and all this kind of stuff. And we spent that house was decided upon about to the la- at the last minute because both being architects, we knew the importance of that location, and we modified it. We put some French doors in and things like that and made it easier to light, and we shaped that house and specifically picked a floor plan that had a flow to it that we could use for this kind of movie. Which was so essential to the block because there are scenes where they're getting into fights in the main room where they, mm-hmm. somebody goes into yeah, the kitchen. Yeah, flow with them. Can flow with them and everything feels so... And then her bedroom kind of becomes the set within the set where we open and where a lot of other action yeah. takes place. I mean, that movie was very well planned and to the actor's credit, when they came on set, that camera started rolling. It didn't stop till the day was over. You know, and everybody came out acting. Uh, Catherine uh, really rehearsed them well. And, you know, she would shoot scenes in her bedroom, you know, video scenes. And when they came there, they knew what they were doing. Right. So, so along with you is, um, apologies, Tracy Ullman? No. No, it was uh, Evan Rachel Wood. uh, Who plays the mother? uh, Holly Hunter. Holly Hunter, sorry. And then Nikki Reed was the girl. I always get confused between Livol and Livol. Anyway, Um, Holly Hunter along with you, is probably one of the most experienced people on the set. She And her performance just feels completely integrated with everyone else's. It's, it's you know, it's right there. Was she sort of really, was there any nervous, I mean, we talked about the Michelle Pfeiffer lighting setup. Obviously, you weren't doing that here. Um, was she just right in there with the whole with the whole picture? I mean, yeah, yeah. I mean, I still try to 
keep Holly looking decent, you know yeah. what I mean? But within the world that she was, you know, this was a lower Class. income house, yeah. household, you know, uh, salon in the house type thing. And we wanted that grittiness, you know what I mean? But everybody was given the best light they could. You know, it wasn't like, oh, we're like this, so anything will do. It still wasn't like that. You know, people were angled to get the best light. And uh, Catherine always said, I had a ninja Kino Flow crew. You know, she'd say, okay, we're ready. And, and then somebody would sneak a light in, you know, to make the light better, you know, just hand-hold it in there. Um, but... You know, everything was done to make it look as good as possible. You know what I mean? Now, you know, a lot of films, of course, after this film, took that look, like Hurt Locker and other films. You know, I always joke that Hurt Locker's like 13 in Baghdad. <laughs> right? I mean, if, if you look at it... I never thought about you know, that, actually. If you look at it, it's the same thing, right? They do the same... It's, it's the same thing, you know? But I'm just trying to say that that film provided a template... For films that followed, you know, it was a became a reference film. Now, I don't know if they looked at that film or not, but I, I can't imagine they didn't. Right. Maybe they did, maybe they didn't, but if I were them, I would have. Well, we're going to get uh, Kevin Bigelow over here and just find out about that. Yeah. We're going to find out. No, in all sincerity. <laughs> no, it's a, it's a great, but again, what amazed me about it was that when I think about the movie in hindsight, before watching it again, I thought, oh, it's psychedelic. It's 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 got this energy to it. Most of that is the motion of the camera. Yeah, it's not. Again, it's, it's not it's, the lighting. No, it's expressionism. Right. You know, this is now what it's a realistic expressionism. When they go in front of those sprinklers. Yep. That was pre-planned, but that's what it was. You know, again, we had hardly any resources. You know, we had a balloon light. We had found a. We're in a park and. Culver City somewhere, I think. I don't know. And we're on a berm. I asked to find a berm. I put some lights on the other side of the berm to backlight the water. And I said, well, we got to get some sprinklers. And I don't know, that was a big deal, you know, getting sprinklers some water out there. But that's all it was. And then we had a big backlight, you know. And that's how we lit it, you know. And we just let the kids run and, and, and shoot it. And um, the sequence where uh, the two girls sort of get trashed well, that's half the movie, but uh, where Nikki Reed and Evan Rachel Wood get pretty loaded and she starts going through store after store after store. Oh, on Hollywood Boulevard. On Hollywood Boulevard. Yeah. Well, we just, did you uh, have those locations or did you just walk in there? They had talked to those people, but we did not have Hollywood Boulevard's location. We just went out on the street with that camera and just shot them. 500 speed stock? Yeah. Well, pushed. it was 800 now. <laughs> or 640. Yeah, we just went out and shot them. You know, I forget. I think I had a handheld light, though, sometimes. Yeah, battery-operated light, soft source. And that's all we did. We just went out on the street and shot them acting. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, we had our shots, again, designed. We yeah. knew what we were going to do, but we put them in that world. And did you push when you got into the grading or however you did the grading? I don't know if it was... We did a analog. DI. It was one of the first films with a DI, 2003. Right. We did it over at Techniques, Technicolor. So you scanned the film at probably 2K resolution. Yeah. Or, and when you got into the interiors with all the fluorescence and everything, did you sway the colors, you know, a little bit blue, green, or whatever you were doing? Or was it just that's the way they appeared? Well, they started with what they were because I didn't have the resources to change tubes. I wanted those off colors. Right. 
I wanted them to be, you know, green, blue, whatever, and uh, I didn't fight that. Right. You know, the sodium vapor had a sodium vapor look. That was part of the kaleidoscope effect of it. Right. So it was a pivotal movie for you. It is a pivotal movie for me, and it's probably a pivotal movie for independent film culture. Yeah. You know, not just me, you know. I mean, it's a film I'm very proud of in terms of a creative experience. I have to say it's a high point to pull something like that off. Well, it was an achievement. It was a tremendous achievement. And even just watching it again for this, I, I thought, man, this is a really, really freaking impressive film. Yeah. Um, let's go ahead to... Um, to Twilight because we have to we have to we can't do this without get shot not talking about Twilight well the film that came before Twilight with Catherine though, yeah. was Nativity Story right I haven't seen that movie yeah which if you look at the palette of that movie it's a very beautiful subdued palette like that only it's thrown more toward the warmer you know instead of the colder and again you know you know, honing the palettes, honing the control mm -hmm. with the digital intermediate process. If I had to only have one tool as a cinematographer besides the camera, it would be the DI. The DI is where I make the movie from my point of view. Because it's like the edit for the director. Yeah, but it's where I control secondaries, contrast, skin tones, window, you know, Photoshop. So DI is a revelation for you then, because before that, all you had, was, I mean, not all you had, but you could grade it, but you were grading it analog. Oh, yeah, you just grade analog, and you had just that overall color control. So for me, I tried to get my first DI thing going in 2001 with, uh, on I Am Sam. I wanted to at least do the parts in the courtroom or in the hearing room for Michelle as a DI, because I wanted that desaturated, cold look in there, and New Line wouldn't approve it too cheap. <laughs> so, um, you know, that should have been a DI. That whole film should have been a DI. It was available. They just didn't want to pay for it. Well, I hate to tell you this, but it looks pretty good without the DI. Yeah. Well, you're watching, again, through telecine. So a lot well, of I'm watching a video did. transfer, I yeah. guess, but I saw it in the theater. Yeah. It was a long time ago, you know, but I don't... Like, when I shoot, I'm never, I don't care what film looks like when I'm shooting film. I, it's only a capture medium for me. I only care what the digital result is. Doesn't that impact what you said earlier about the magic of not knowing what the No, film no, is? I'm saying when we shoot film, I when see. we shoot film, I, I still have to imagine what that, how to do it. But once I've done it, I don't care sure. what that film looks like. Right, as long as it's exposed. Yeah, exposed the way I want it. Yeah. What I'm trying to do is make that work for the DI look. Again, that's part of the pre-visualization thing. I'm pre-imagining what that DI is supposed to look like. So every step along the way, I, I'm making my intermediate processes support that. Awesome. Can we talk about Twilight? Mm. Or, okay, so, so Twilight is like visually, it feels like a little bit of 13 crossed with, a there are times where everything is, you know, still and gorgeous. And then there are times, like the running through the forest with, with uh, with Robert Pattinson, feel is has a special effect to it that's not like. It's not like any other studio picture. It's not like anything else that was done. It it just feels almost like you know, all the high speed stuff is wacky and weird and has a, a feel to it that's like raw. And how did you go about getting those those images? 
I mean, was it was it was it a long time with it with, with a VFX supervisor yourself and Catherine, or was it just? Well, it was a very integrated process. We had a very good second unit person, Patrick Loungeway. Yeah. Patrick was really good, very inventive himself, you know, and he's the kind of person you could send off by himself mm -hmm. and improve things. And for me, motion blur and high speed was always a critical part of, and ramping, speed ramping. Ramping, yeah. Was a critical part like of... Like the baseball game as well, too. Yeah, a critical part of the vampire experience, and that's, that's something I insisted on ever since I came on the project in terms of an emotional feel of things, you know, of being with the characters, ramping with them. Um, you know, and also in terms of their magical abilities. Uh, and I'm not saying that's even new. Nothing's new in film. It's just how you use it. And we didn't try and use it like some commercial. You know, we tried to make it a part of the story. Um, I guess the biggest coup in, in Twilight, again, which set probably a standard in looks, was the coloring. Yes. You know? It was this sort of very, a lot of green from the from the surrounding area and blue and, and not monochromatic, but very, edge, you know. Well, it was built, you know, again, this is a DI process. It was built, uh, the, the inspiration for it for me was noticing that Kristen Stewart was whiter than any vampire. <laughs> okay. Naturally. Right, naturally. Her paleness, yeah, yeah, you yeah, know, I yeah, guess yeah, her yeah. Irish type skin. Yeah. And so what I did was I... Again, this is the creative process, right? Mm -hmm. It's taking advantage of the journey. Looking at her and going, wow, yeah. She really is a vampire wannabe. And the subtext of her, she really is a vampire, even though she hasn't become one yet. And the people in the Pacific Northwest, there's no sun up there, so everybody should be like her. Not that she should be vampires, should be this unique thing of... of uh, very pale, and everybody else is their normal skin tone. No, everybody should be like a vampire. And th so that allows the vampires to exist among them without raising suspicion. They don't look so special. They look like just pale-skinned people. So as soon as I incorporated that in my world, I said, okay, now where are we? We got our people. They've all got to be this pale, monochromatic, um, desaturated look. And so where do we go from here? So, oh, yes, we're in the Northwest. What is the Northwest? The Northwest is cold light, lush greens, dark blacks, you know, in the forest. And when things are bright, when the sky comes Shafts through. Shafts of light, yeah. Yeah, only when the sun's out. But, but more like bright, cloudy, you know, when it comes through the trees, you know, that this kind of misty kind of thing. So I built that. In the DI, you know, I desaturated the whole thing. I crushed the blacks down to a really good black level, still independent of the skin tones. Then I pushed the whites extreme yep. so that they would blow. And then I brought the greens back. So you don't get the desaturated green, but the greens became alive. You know, they became an element, you know especially since these are supposed to be vegetarian ones. Right. So the green, the foliage, the plant life became, they become part of the plant life. It's living. And then, then I just cooled the whole thing off for the you know, cool climate, and that became the twilight look. And then I incorporated that right away into the dailies. 
so that oh, so you got you got every piece of film yeah. the producers saw had that look on it because they may have what so often happens with cinematographers or yes. directors. Yes. You want to look and they film it straight and then you put that look on the film. And, and the producers go, go, yeah, what's that? Yeah. We like the way it looked that way, which is nothing. So since we're not dealing with reality, especially in a film like this, the coup for me was getting that look right off the bat. So every day they looked at that film, they saw it that way, and then they became part of that world too. So the producers you know, supported that instead of fighting it. It's interesting you say this. So you're saying it really often happens that a photographer will have in the back of his mind, I'm going to pull this magic trick through the DI, and I'm exposing it this way and that way, and I'm getting it, but I know I'm going to do that with it. Then they go to do that with it, and because the studio and and the, the producers, everybody have been... Staring at whatever their idea of the movie is, they can't handle the style. Yeah, they can't right. envision the style because they're not—they're not the creative entities. They're—they're—they're they're, they're the marketing entities and the producers. So they all have their own ideas, which have nothing to do necessarily with the movie. You know, like they could say, "Well, my house is white. What's wrong with having it white?" Or, you know, "I like a lot of color in people's faces. What's wrong with that?" Well, yeah, but as an artist for this movie, that's not the way it should be. Okay. So outside outside of the DI and the look and that and that which which was so specific for Twilight, with the camera, with the compositions, with what you were doing, what did you and Catherine want to do? That was you know not it's not thirteen. This is a different movie, right? What so did you we want? wanted to do was we wanted to have that subjective feeling again. Catherine is very much a her propensity, I should say is very much floating in there being with the actors. That's her, her feeling about things. You know, if you look at all her films from 13 to Lords of Dogtown yep. to even Nativity Story, you know, there's parts of the Nativity Story becomes more formal. Um, you know, because there's a certain living energy that young people have. And if you just you know, formalize it and lock cameras off and be on the dolly all the time, it puts a lot of weight on them for acting, a lot of responsibility to to make their characters live, where the camera is totally, totally capable of helping them by being more with them and bringing the audience into their world. And that's where Catherine comes from with that. And so we use the camera. A lot of Twilight is handheld. Even if it's steady, it's still handheld. And... Um, you know, so you feel like the film has a, has a, a, is alive. And because in the end, that first Twilight is a love story. It's not trying to get the, um, the, 19, you know, the 15 to 25-year-old male uh, uh, audience in there with some kind of forced action sequences. No. Which, as it goes it, along... The story of Twilight is as much of a crack for, as much of crack for teenage girl as it is... Romeo and Juliet. Yeah, I mean. but and exactly, and if a boy allowed himself to go there and see that movie, he would get into it too. It's just yeah. that they have this stigma that it's a girls' thing or whatever, and of course that's the job of the marketing people is to get the boys in. But I'm sure a lot of the men came with the with the women, but they just can't bring themselves to say, "Hey, you know, I kind of enjoyed that." It's just men have a hard time being truthful. It's just the nature of men. <laughs> Davis. <laughs> Thank you for joining us. That was great. That was a great note to end off on. Men have a hard time being truthful. It's true. True thing. Yeah. 
I mean, I have to say uh, just one thing. Yeah, yeah, one go. of the biggest coups for me uh, was in the Tivity story, although even as a film, maybe it's more minor in my filmography, no, was no. The, the birth scene of Jesus in yeah. the Tivity story. I sweated that for weeks about how to do that because well looked, that's because if I may infer uh, you know you have such a large breadth of knowledge and you take intellectual matters very seriously and you're talking about something that you know from whatever perspective literarily culturally you know historically is such a you know I mean how do you shoot that it's like go shoot the birth of Jesus it's like I know. you're dead how do you do you're dead. there's nothing you can do I know I, I mean unless you want to do like a gyno cam and just go through the birth canal yourself like <laughs> yeah. you know you know. Oh, that, maybe that would be a David Fincher approach. Yeah. But the thing was... <laughs> or John that, Waters, John yeah. Waters, yeah. But all the great pieces of art from history were flashing through my mind. How the greatest artists in the world had painted... Painted the nativity story. story, yeah. yeah. And they had months or weeks or years to do it. Yeah. So I, I couldn't figure out, how the hell am I going to do this that it just doesn't look hokey? Turn to the three wise men, Gordon Willis, Vittorio Storero, and... Uh, <laughs> Yeah, but none of them had to do it. <laughs> so I said to myself, how am I going to do it? And I'm a big meditator. Right. I meditate a lot. Yep. And so one day I'm, in, I'm meditating, and it just kind of creeped in, floated in and out. I was going to do it in silhouette, not show it. Show the, show the opposite, you know, not the light side, but show the light side through the dark side. And so I had the dark this, side of Jesus, if you will. <laughs> yeah. And so I had this. I said, "Okay, I'm going to just deal with elements." So I just made this shaft of light, and I played the whole birth scene against that shaft of light. You know, so really, it just came down to an element of dark against light. You know, to just give that feeling of like, you know, heavenliness, but still rooted very much in. You know, this kind of real, uh, I want to say, graphic, you know. Fantastic. Yes, I I never saw the nativity story in, I mean, the birth in silhouette before, played in silhouette. Everybody always wants to see the enlightened face of Jesus. That was great. That was a creative coup for me, you know, my own little personal thing. Good for you. Well, I'm glad because what you did there was you just zeroed in on something from your career that was like a triumph. Yeah, it, yeah was. it was. A, a little break- victory. It was a breakthrough, you know. I mean, mm. even though it wasn't a major film, it was a major creative breakthrough for me. <laughs> That's great. Yeah. Those are the things that are inspired, and you can see it on the film. Yeah, yeah, it was fun.